Broadcasting live from Pedro Bros. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I'm Garrett Strother, who's now realizing that Pedro Bros sounds a little bit weird in Does the, it? the like just <laughs> because we're it's usually the name of our segment. Yeah, and broadcasting so live from the two of us, the Pedro Bros. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a little true, weird. I guess. It's a little we're strange. Broadcasting live. That's fair. I don't know. I just I hadn't really thought about it in context <laughs> yet, Seamus. Well, hey, my Pascal Rascals is still uh, it's still canon in in the verse, so don't yeah. don't you worry about that. Uh, but before we get into eleven episodes of Pedro Pascal television, uh, why don't we jump right into the news? Starting off with a. This is actually very sad because I think he's a really, really talented actor. Lance Reddick has passed away at the age of 60, I think most known for his roles on The Wire and in the video game Horizon Zero Dawn and Horizon Forbidden West. I think he also had a pretty big uh, Star Trek following. Was that he Star Trek? I don't know. No, I, know, I don't think it was. I know Actually, that there's that. that one episode of the Eric Andre show that he's on where he comes out <laughs> dressed as Kunta <laughs> oh, Kente oh, and no. with the visor on from Next Generation where he goes, like, I wish I, I was LeVar Burton. Burton. Yeah, yep, that's 100% what I, I was like. I think I've seen him in a weird Star Trek visor before. That's 100% <laughs> what I'm thinking of. Uh, he's so good in that episode. Though. Oh, that's yes, such a funny dude. thing. So good, so good. I... All the things I know him from feel so small. I I mean, like like you mentioned, Horizon. Even his role in that feels like, even though he is maybe a bigger bad guy than I know. I guess I haven't played the second game yet. I don't know, but you know, something like that, or you know, John Wick. He's the classy That's stoic attendant. Uh, yeah, he's great in those. He really is. He is so good. Yeah, I I don't know. I feel foolish knowing him from like really small weird things, but he's been a knockout pretty much in everything I've ever seen him in. I'm going to say and I'm pretty sure this is true that he has like a three episode stint on Lost. Yeah, I'm right. What? I'm pretty really? Sure. Yeah. It's an island. How is he only there for three episodes? Well, you know, the structure of Lost James <laughs> is half of it's on the island and half of it is flashbacks to their life before they were on the island. It's, so, it's just a flashback to Lance Riddick playing himself, watching John Munch on SVU, <laughs> on the mainland. On the wire, on... <laughs> on the wire, on the main in Baltimore. He's from Baltimore, actually, and his family is encouraging donations to be made to the charity Mom Cares in Baltimore, where he's from. So, oh, that is so go. that is so sweet. That's very nice. I also feel like we would be remiss to mention, which is, just, which is disservice to him, but... The the most we've ever talked about him on this show is during our Vin Diesel marathon. <laughs> we what? were doing the what? Riddick movies, and oh my god, you kept calling him Reddick, <laughs> and you were like, "Where is Reddick coming from?" That is and completely it, true. My God, but yeah, it's it's real sad, and I like Lance Reddick a lot, and he's re- he's really good on the wire. And you should get around to the wire. Yes, Janice. absolutely. There's more and more reasons to get into this Baltimore heavy crime stuff where I know people are incredible. Munch is there, you know. Munch is you'll there. Be, like you looking out for him. Exactly. I, I think I think it's time to get into some dark, gritty stuff. But hopefully the opposite of dark and gritty <laughs> is going to be Superman Legacy, uh, a film that was already announced, and that it was already announced that James Gunn is writing, but it turns out that James Gunn will also be directing yeah. Superman Legacy. My, my goodness, that is that is 
very interesting. I have spoken many times on this show about my lack of history with Superman stuff. Like, I've really only seen the dumb, bad, gray ones that are new. And I th- this is this has got me real way more interested. I was already interested to begin with, but this is this is just the old one-two James Gunn punch. So I'm I'm very excited to see what he's gonna pull out for Superman. I am. I love James Gunn. I love the Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought the Suicide Squad was good. I'm pretty skeptical about this, actually, because I don't know, and I'm sure he's got more range than I've seen, but I'm not sure how much I like Gunn's voice for Superman, and writing is one thing, because I know he's a very talented writer, but I was also really hoping that they would come in with somebody who I think, like Marielle Heller or Paul King, who does the Paddington movies, somebody who, like, really understands how to make kindness feel like a superpower. And it's not that I don't necessarily have faith in Gunn to be able to do that, but I do think that there are other options. And he says in his announcement, he's like, I was really resistant to doing this for a really long time. I've turned down Superman multiple times before, but I feel like now I'm finally ready to take on this character. So, like, you know, I appreciate that he was resistant until he felt like he was ready to to helm that role. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that means he might have a few cards up his sleeve that he's kind of been developing in himself for this, you know, caliber of movie. But I, I guess my optimism comes from the fact that, I mean, like, I've never, I'd never heard of the Guardians of the Galaxy, and then, you know, now I love them so much because of, you know, his work. And even more specifically with DC, Suicide Squad is not my kind of flick, the, uh, the original one. And then maybe it is just judging... The the, the Suicide Squad against the rest of the DC universe at the time, but I, I remember just having a, an absolute blast with, with what he was doing, so the fact that he's kind of, e- even his reluctance gives me a little bit of hope that he's taking this to a level that maybe he is not so sure about himself, but a different level nonetheless that I think will be very interesting with, I mean, it's Superman legacy, the legacy that Superman has right now in Hollywood is like not great for the modern stuff that's been coming out, so I'm 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 just very curious, I would say, to see how he's going to be handling something like that. Regardless, I'm certain he understands the character better than Zack Snyder, so... <laughs> exactly, dude. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to judge it against Man of Steel, because that's, as terrible as that is to say, that's my Superman, and, and, and I don't want it to be, so maybe this will be my new Superman. We have to get you on, Christopher Reeve. I know, dude. dude. It's like, there's no reason I, I shouldn't be watching those. I think those look like a lot of fun, but it's just, I just never got around to him straight up yeah well i'm interested to see where this goes i'm interested to learn i think casting is now the next important thing because Mm -hmm. henry cavill i think had a great superman in him and it's a shame that we're never going to get to see that superman actually i take it back we saw that Superman for about 10 seconds at the end <laughs> I was of Black s- Adam. I was going to say. But I want to see Cavill's Superman, but I'm also interested in seeing what a new, what some new blood can bring to the table. And I know that it sounds like this project may or may not be dead with the new DC slate. Uh, you and I were talking about it before the show. Michael B. Jordan, I think, would be a great Superman. I would love to mm-hmm. see him be Superman. Um, yeah, I absolutely. don't think that's what they're going to do with, with Superman Legacy, but... And frankly, I think if they were, if they are, and I still hope they are moving forward with that project, I feel like it would be a little more, 
I feel like it would be a little more powerful if it was kind of that Elseworlds project style standalone. Totally. Don't have to be beholden to literally anything else. Like, I, I feel like that would be the real vibe of a, of a movie like that. Yeah, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. But we'll have to, we'll have to see what have to... Ooh, hold on. Glenn Powell? Glenn Powell? From from Top Gun Maverick? Glenn Powell? Who is he in Top <laughs> Is he, he the, the guy? The snarky guy. Ma- the, the mean guy. Yeah, the, the bully. The school high school bully in Air Force. Yeah, um, Hangman. I'd have to see him with dark hair, but... I feel like his uh, his face is He's got so... a weird face. He's, he's got, very handsome. He's got... He's handsome, but he's like... He's like preppy... Like, yeah. I feel like he's gonna be mean to me in any role for some yeah, reason. He's got that pointy you nose. You have to have that, like, Midwestern aw shucks, but I'm still super exactly. handsome Exactly. The squarest jaw of all time, but, like, you're helping the old lady that you're, is your neighbor, like, bake a pie or something. I could see, I could see Henry Cavill Superman doing that. Totally. I mean, I think the, some, I think the best stuff in Man of Steel is when he's in Clark Kent mode, and when he is mm-hmm. just kind of aw shucks, aw ma Kent, aw... I'm going to let my dad die in a tornado for no reason. <laughs> oh, what a stupid scene. What a stupid a movie. movie. Good lord. I, 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 to this day, I remember nothing but the punching, and that's all I want to remember, really. The punching in that stupid scene. You don't remember Amy Adams running down the untouchable steps in Union no. Station <laughs> when watching Zod get his neck snapped? <laughs> what? Really? I think she actually runs down, I, th- I think she runs down the, uh, the steps that are on the other side of Union Station. Ah, I see. steps, but still. That's fun. You know, I that's not fun enough for me to ever want to rewatch that movie, but that's fun. No, I mean, like, <laughs> the scene I just described is not a good scene. Oh, so. God. Oh, what a waste. But, you know, hopefully we're turning a, we're turning a corner here with Superman. And, and whatever whatever comes with Gunn, I think I will want to see it in the theaters regardless at this point. 100% agree with you. We're definitely going to cover it for this show, so. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. But what do you say we talk about a little bit about the Oscars that just happened, uh, what seems like a million weeks ago? Yeah, we, we've we been on a weird schedule here on Pop Culture <laughs> Reference. Um, uh, but... Breaking news, Brendan Fraser wins Best Actor. <laughs> I mean, I was mostly happy with the acting categories. I obviously, Kihi Kwan, Brendan Fraser, Michelle Yeoh, mm-hmm. very glad to see them have their day in the sun. Absolutely. That warmed my heart to no end, seeing them in tears in each other's arms post-award ceremony. It, it was very, very beautiful. Shocked to see the Daniels win Best Director. I mean, good for them, but was very much expecting uh, Spielberg to get that one. Yeah, it, interesting that the the Swiss Army Man fellows pulled home so many Oscars. It, if I had been told that when Swiss Army Man was coming out, I would have I would have fully not believed it. But you know, I'm 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 really happy. I hope they get to keep doing insane things that are like the, that have the most money behind them. Yeah, I agree. And uh, there was, I mean, the Oscar ceremony had some weird stuff with it. <laughs> it. There was, I know you didn't watch, Shameless. Yeah, I couldn't, so. ha- I couldn't stomach a second of Kimmel again. I just can't allow this man to ho- be my Oscars host one more time. The one joke that I did think was pretty funny from the monologue was James Cameron and Tom Cruise were not in attendance, and he was like, the two guys who keep telling us to go back to the theater <laughs> that didn't is... come to the theater. That's pretty good. Kudos to whoever wrote that joke for Jimmy Kimmel, because exactly. that's really funny, actually. <laughs> um, 
there was I mean there was a lot of annoying Oscar stuff less than there usually is but there was a part where Halle Bailey and Liz McCarthy came out and you thought they were going to present an award and they said actually no here's the trailer for the new Little Mermaid movie and they played it wow. during the award show and like not during the commercial break but during the actual Oscars that they stopped the show so weird that is so strange has that I, ever I can, I can't think of anything like that that's ever happened before. I mean, sometimes they, last year they did like the the vote the viewers' choice award thing that they would slip in well, there. But you can't picture Jack Donna getting getting transferred to ABC and going, "Well, we're gonna synergize Disney's new <laughs> yeah. upcoming Little Mermaid movie with the Oscars on ABC, which we also own." Uh, he would sell the rights to the Oscar ceremony to iHeartConnecticut.com. It, it would be it would be perfect. <laughs> um. Natu Natu, obviously glad to seeing that see that win best original song from RRR. Yeah, incredible. I know that there was some weirdness where none of the dancers were actually South Asian. Yeah, that uh, is that is Oscar Oscars. You're you're getting there. Just do just go all the way. Don't be weird about that kind of stuff because that is that is going to make a lot of people feel a lot of kind of uncomfortable feelings. Especially because they were so kind of performative about like. The first song from India ever nominated for an Academy Award. Da da da. Like they're very proud of the inclusion. Yeah, I think exactly. That That's exhibiting. what I'm saying. Uh, very strange. Uh, Pinocchio won animated feature. It did, which I'm glad about because I, I mean I liked Turning Red. I liked Puss in Boots. The Last Wish. Fine, but I I haven't seen Pinocchio, but I've heard it's absolutely fantastic, and I I really want to get around to that one because I it's also like really trippy and dark and and gross and weird i think is what i hear del toro did what yeah exactly (laughs) who would have ever thought it also i i'll say this all quiet on the western front a movie that i thought i think we talked about this on the show another time too a movie that i thought was like pretty good mostly Mm. fine not a great adaptation of its source material and doesn't have a real identity as a film on its own it's more of a war movie pastiche one so many awards it was crazy and i wish it hadn't because i think there were a lot of better movies nominated this yeah, year than uh, that movie top gun only got one right top yeah gun. for sound top gun one sound avatar only got one for visual effects which how do you not give production design yeah, to avatar that that's kind of crazy seriously how do you not give cinematography to anything other than all quiet on the western front <laughs> But, yeah, it it is what it is. I think Oscars are going to Oscar. It's yeah, not yeah. worth us hemming and hawing. But, you know, I think generally better than usual. We hardly ever talk about the Oscars on this show, so... You know what? Maybe if next year the Muppets finally host it, we're going we're gonna to explode. I, that'll get me back into the Oscar swing, maybe. There are so many better options to host the Oscars than Jimmy Kimmel. I really don't understand... I will say, if you didn't watch it, the promo video that they made for Kimmel hosting the Oscars where it's shot for shot a recreation of Top Gun Maverick. Very funny. That sounds fun too. Oh Um, man. It's Kimmel. It's like, I gotta say, I wasn't expecting to be asked back. And it's John Hamm and Charles Parnell (laughs) sitting on the set of Top Gun Maverick going like, I gotta be clear. You were not my first choice. (laughs) Billy Crystal said no. Uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short said no. Da 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 said no. You know, it's funny. It's that that is really funny. They're all sitting in an Applebee's together, right? Yeah, that's where that's where that intro (laughs) takes place. Well, it's crazy. It it is actually genuinely crazy that how it's the best kind of parody, which is formally matching exactly the thing that you're parodying, (laughs) which I do love. That is that is always fun. 
But that that's a, that's the end of our news segment, I think, Seamus, unless you have anything else to say about the Oscars. Nope, I, I do not, but I am absolutely ready to start round one of our Pedro Pascal talk with The Last of Us. Ding, ding. For today's main segment, we are talking about the entire first season of HBO's The Last of Us series, starring Pedro Pascal, and my goodness... Was this an interesting piece to watch, having just replayed a lot of this first game? I I definitely had a very enjoyable, interesting, stressed out time watching this. But I what what do you think about this, Garrett? I guess maybe my real first question should be, did you finish the game before you watched any of this? I I did finish the last yeah. of us. Oh my god. Sound the alarms. My goodness gracious. It's amazing to me how, and this is this is how I'm going to frame this for you, Seamus, because I think it's true. Because I had started The Last of Us so many times, I obviously played a good chunk of it, the most I'd ever played, mm-hmm. for, for our the episode show, covering the video game when this show started. And I think it took the emotional jumpstart of being invested in the characters in the TV show enough for me to continue on through the game. That was one. That is exactly what I was hoping would happen with you, dude. Because I want to say this is maybe the best. It's like the first time I've ever seen a video game adaptation for the players of the game. Like, there's so much in there that it's, it's the the downfall of so many adaptations like that is like. We need to make this as broad of an appeal as possible, and we'll turn it into something that the source material is not, so that we can make the money that it would be if it was like a regular movie. But this show was so on point with the tiny little nudges and the little references, and not only subverting expectations of, you know, if you know this game, you know what this scene is... But taking those expectations and giving you a little bit of a nudge and then subverting your expectations into something that is almost equally as satisfying to anything that happens in the game. I'm going to say this right off the bat, and I think it's something we're going to come back to multiple times over our discussion. They were already starting with an advantage, I think, adapting this game because the game is structured already like a prestige miniseries absolutely correct and i that (laughs) oh yeah i guess maybe that is why this is incredible of a show and everyone was surprised and that's and that's not me knocking the craft going on because i think frankly i think the storytelling going on in this show is far beyond the storytelling going on Mm. in the video game i think that the scope and themes and depth of character have been expanded and improved by this adaptation, by having some, you know, not that Druckmann isn't a great writer. I love Uncharted 4. I think that the story of The Last of Us is very compelling. But The Last of Us kind of, the game kind of feels a little broad in its storytelling, even though it is very personal. Mm. Um, And I think that having the time on television to really dig into some character moments that would be boring to play through or watch in a cutscene in a video game get me a little bit more invested in the characters and help me a little bit understand where they're coming from and i think that's something we're gonna have to talk about in spoilers oh yeah for Uh, sure we're gonna dig into that one for sure because the 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 structure of the season is very i think non-traditional 
in the structure of a normal first season of any kind of series. And I think that partially is helped along by the fact that while it in no way relies on you knowing anything about the video game, it also kind of ha is falling a little bit back on two things. One, the fact that there are people who are already familiar with the video game. But two, this kind of post-apocalyptic media and specifically, you know, zombies and the structure of the story of The Last of Us of, the you know, this survivor has to carry on a younger person who's relying on them that may or may not impact, you know, the fate of mm. people outside of themselves. That's a very kind of worn, uh, well-visited trope. I think that there are a lot of things that The Last of Us, the game, pulls from. And instead of letting that be a knock against the adaptation of this, of this as a series, of being like, oh, well, it's just kind of like lame version children of men or it's kind of like rehashing a lot of the walking dead it uses that shorthand that viewers already have even if you haven't played the last of us game you understand how how zombie and post-apocalyptic mm. storytelling work and you understand what those beats are and it uses that shorthand to find really human moments that they can completely expand and balloon into something like you've never seen before Whereas if I think if it were a war one-to-one -one adaptation of the game, we would all just kind of be like, man, that's just kind of lame children of men now that it's not in a video game format. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes from Pedro Pascal and his incredible performances here as Joel. And I, I can't ever say anything bad about Troy Baker's original performance in the games, but there's, you know, there's only so much you can do with a computer-generated face with with all of the motion capture technology and facial mapping and everything that we have for that now, I think there, th those moments that they get to expand on between Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey, my God, she was also incredible. I think I I didn't expect to enjoy this show so much. I guess is what I'm trying to say. But the the way that everything is structured and the performances themselves that expand on those human moments, like you're saying, are are incredible. Kind of like Andor. Whether or not this were connected to a property that I already was familiar with, it would have been one of my favorite shows of the year. It's and it's I think that superb power in that. Absolutely, for sure. That that's kind of what I was uh, saying a little bit before. It's like this show, though the broad appeal still exists. There's so much for the the fans that are already built into what this show's audience was already going to be. And the, Absolutely. just the the amount of respect that they put into the the show about the game. And I, I'm sure that is all at the behest of Neil Druckmann fitting in so many little things that he knows are important enough to be even subtly noticed. I, I'm just thoroughly impressed. And I don't know a ton about part two. I know, I know some of the major spoilers for part two, but even from the little bit I know about part two the the way that they are elegantly kind of retroactively able to fit storytelling like seeds in this first season that will then bloom as they go forward i think is really good writing and really impressive oh absolutely i i was picking up on a lot of those small things that are you know season 2 or i think i i believe neil druckmann said in an interview that maybe two more seasons are going to cover the second game which they, I, they said that yeah they said that 
that the second game is going to be multiple seasons. Which, I don't know if they've confirmed how many it's going to be. I I hope it is though. It, the I I've you know hinted to you about just how insane the structure of that second game is, and I think if they took that time, I think it would honestly add a lot to an already super acclaimed story. So I there there's a couple things that I I would love to talk about in spoilers with you to see if you picked up on them or you know, what you do or don't know about who may or may not have been in the background of certain scenes and all that. Oh, kind well, of stuff. I kind of, I know some of that stuff, I think. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Um, but I also want to go back to this idea of being able to kind of plant seeds is that something that the show is able to do retroactively is to establish character behavior that then pays off even better in, um, specific scenes so like in the and i'm gonna be vague about this because i don't want to go into spoilers <laughs> just to make this point but there's something that joel uses to navigate with a map a technique that he uses that in the video game you only see him do once but throughout the course of an episode you see him do multiple times mm. in the show so that kind of you know as that technique escalates it makes a lot of sense to you and it feels more like a payoff than just something the character does. And that's not to say it was broken in the video game, but it's just good character expansion and good adaptive writing as they work those things into the narrative. Yeah, you love to see the the subtleties of that, the expansion of things that are, like you said, almost glossed over entirely that they get to really play with a little bit more, especially with the amount of liberties that they're taking in the actual structure of the story you know just from start to finish i really appreciated the the work they put in on that and how it felt like it wasn't just hey let's make this different than the game it was like we're doing this on purpose for a reason it 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 felt really i don't know it felt really good it felt like a satisfying kind of show to watch where a lot of the times now I, I jump on a show that is, you know, big and popular and just came out and all the whole seasons on streaming. And I, I find myself, you know, getting bored more often than not rehashing things, doing the same kind of boring story structures over and over. This was this was just something a little more special. I will say that those first couple episodes, while very good I think we're more emblematic of what I thought the show was going to be, which is, you know, some details changed and some things expanded to make mm-hmm. a good adaptation because I know Craig Mazin knows how to make good television, you know. But I expected it to be a lot more one-to-one than it ended up being. And I think when you hit that third episode, which we'll get to in spoilers, the show makes a very a very staunch declaration of, like, this is not The Last of Us you're familiar with. Like, mm-hmm. we we are paying homage to that. We are very respectful to that. It's an adaptation, but it is its own thing. It is very much its own show with its own identity that has, like you were talking about, the structural differences and the, and the differences of details between the game, but also, frankly, tonal difference. I, I think that the outlook of this show is different and, frankly, less bleak than the outlook of the game. Yeah, I could, I could agree with that, and it's... Again, maybe a lot going for the longevity of a show like this depends on the enjoyment of watching it. And I know your opinions on your enjoyment levels of the actual game play of the games themselves. So yeah. I, I appreciate that switch a lot. Even I, I appreciate the intensity that, that we see in the games from that same kind of 
area, but you know, the games themselves, it's you're you're doing the work, you're putting in the work, you have all this extra stuff to make it an interactive experience. But in this it is so satisfying to sit back into the story and just let it happen in the way that they want to tell it. And also, something I said during our video game episode is that bleak storytelling I can watch. You know, I, mm-hmm. I will remain invested. I love a lot. I mean, Children of Men is one of my favorite movies. I That movie is bleak and such a major influence on the video game specifically of Last of Us. But it's a whole other thing when I go into the shoes of that character. It takes a lot more. I need to be a lot more invested to keep me returning to that world. Mm. And that's the key that the TV show unlocked for me. That allowed me to go back to the Last of Us game and be invested and play through. Like, I would play th- in a sitting. I would usually play through a full season after like, like, wow, like no kidding. Winter that's a lot. spring or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, I truly hope that brings more people to the game. I feel like that would be, you know, just as an interesting experience for somebody who had never played the game and watched as it would to be, to watch the show and get inspired to play. I, I think that that might open up a lot more doors for that kind of intensive linear story games that, you know, kind of get buried more nowadays versus a lot more arcadey, monetized, online, all the extra that's, things. That... That's what I keep thinking, Seamus, is if there's one problem in the video game industry right now, it's that The Last of Us hasn't had enough of an influence <laughs> on the <laughs> Shut way up. that we play games. Shut up, games. Garrett. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. People I gotta know. try. I want my I want my parents to, like, want to play that kind of video game you know i i want i don't you frankly. don't oh, i don't dude. want I, I i really would i i want that kind of you know perspective enhancement on what video games can be i and guess that's true that, that, guess, that's really what it is because i mean I don't, do i think my parents would have like a fun time playing the last of us probably not but i think i want them to have that or people like them to have that kind of experience with something that they would have completely blown off like without even a second thought i think that's more where i am is that i want i want people to appreciate gaming as an art form even if that's not something that they're necessarily interested in because i do think that there a lot of older people and even some younger people completely dismiss video game storytelling Mm. and i'm not saying that that's where the deepest or the best storytelling is going and um i think that there are people who know more about video games than we do that could probably talk on their show (laughs) about like what storytelling and gaming means and what gaming as an art form means and stuff that I certainly don't feel qualified to to make statements sweeping statements about but yeah I agree that I hope that this show and seeing what a strong adaptation it is helps people like realize that there is stuff like this going on in that field and that it's not all you know Tom Holland is Nathan Drake. <laughs> exactly dude oh my god eye rolling I don't know if you can hear the intense eye rolling through the microphone, it's, but it's, it's happening. like when Liz Lemon does the mega <laughs> eye roll and you can hear it crack like an earthquake. God, yeah. Oh my lord, yeah. I other yeah, exactly. The otherwise incredible story of this game can be buried under the assumption that you need to be like a gamer or like have any kind of interest in that or whatever. But I I'm gonna put but I that's the thing. I'm gonna say that I think as somebody who struggled to get through this game, if you don't really like playing video games, you're not going to do it for The <laughs> yeah. Last of Us. Yeah, maybe, maybe. That, that that could be true. I mean, I 
I guess when I look back on that game, it really is all about the story. You know, it's it's thinking about how relieved I am when it's like daytime and they're like chatting and then the story is great around that. And I mean, I don't want to go back and redo our video game episode, <laughs> but I mean, there, I think there's some, I mean, we talked about the gameplay. There's some gameplay elements that we like more than other gameplay elements, you know? Oh, for sure. And again, I think that part of the problem with that game is more like you unlock so much cool stuff way too late in the game yeah. for it to be useful or oh, fun. That is a shame. <laughs> and the fact that you don't even like fully level like you probably aren't going to fully level up your character by the time you finish the game, which I think is insane. Yeah, that but can be frustrating for sure. Anyway, that's not that's neither here nor there. Because we are talking about the show and I think that if we're digressing into video game talk, <laughs> it's time to go into spoilers. I would for love the Last to. Season one. Yes, spoiler threshold right here. No spores, huh? That was that shocked me. That's just the, what I've been milling around in my head. That that is one of the biggest changes about just the concept of the infected in this show, which I I loved the design of. By the way, I thought the yeah. the mouth tentacle spores are absolutely so disgusting, unnerving. Yeah, but I I was missing a little bit of the spores, and that that is one of many parts of this show that I can fully chalk up to we need to cut what would have been gameplay in this show. We Correct. Need to, we're not trying to have an episode where he's sneaking around spores for a half an hour straight, sneaking real hard, doing all this stuff. I, I thought ultimately fine, but a big noticeable change that, that I, I have been thinking about. But I think, it, I think it goes beyond just like, we don't want to see people in gas masks or whatever. I think that the change to it being something that spreads more organically, like that's not airborne, something that, in one, it's making it more like, you know, traditional zombie stuff. But two, I think that there's a lot of storytelling doors that the new mechanic where they're like all connected in the ground and stuff. I think there's a lot of storytelling doors that that opens that I really like. Absolutely. That that is kind of what I was going to say in terms of like my appreciation of the new infected design is like that was a huge plus that that strange fungal network thing. And I guess there weren't a lot of opportunities even written to the show. They might have had spores at one point, but I feel like specifically there aren't a lot of of those confined situations that they went through with in the show that they would have had to utilize them in the first place. They cut a lot of the sneaking around. I think I actually probably, I was just saying how I'm really glad that more of the show isn't like the game, but I do think that I could have left in a little bit more sneaking around Mm. than they do because really you get like the first episode and then a little bit when they're with Henry and Sam. And I feel like that's pretty much it. Yeah. That, that really, that really is. There's a lot more Raider attacks than I remember. It's a lot more action packed. Which I like that the I feel like they kind of front load the infected in this show. Oh yeah, that is a little bit of a gripe I have actually. I feel like it was a bit underutilized altogether. The the human form of the infection. I I, I think I needed to see a few more clickers in there. But also, I don't really mind because it's the the show has different goals than the game does that's if that makes sense no i i do i i definitely know what you're saying there but when it when it came down to because in in the game there are still just as many human adversaries that you have to work around as the show but 
because they kind of drew back on the infected more, it felt like I... In my head, I was saying to myself, humans are the real monsters again. Yeah, I get it. All right, yeah. yes, humans are the real monsters. I understand. But that, that just feels like the infected were less of a factor on the environment, even though they were constantly talking about them and, you know, taking those precautions. They, they didn't quite run into them as much as I would have liked them to. I think the perfect balance that this show strikes, I think actually the perfect, not to say that this is the best episode for me or anything like that, but the perfect encapsulation of the way that this show is successful in adapting the game, I think all boils down to the two episode arc in Kansas City with Henry and Sam. It, I Yes, we are on the same page, exactly. Because you have a one fantastic expansion of the world and lore and story of the game, making the characters feel more fully realized, more human, while also adding conflict that makes the world the story world feel bigger because I don't feel like the Kansas city portion of the game has real stakes for me. Whereas the Kansas city portion of the show certainly does. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love the whole weird Fedra revolution. That's just as bad as Fedra taking over. And, and like you said, humans are the real monsters. Melanie <laughs> Linsky, by the way, outstanding two episode villain she was the leader the the woman who was leading the revolution in kansas city right correct yeah what what do i know her from amazing um that's a good question let me imdb her real quick to to think about what you because she's in so much stuff i i Um, uh, it was it was driving me nuts because i was trying to come up with it but then i was don't look up i did not see don't look up neither did i okay uh, I was getting distracted um, in that portion a lot, too, of me trying to figure out who that was. Uh, admiring the performance of the guy, damn it, whose name I said I was going to remember. The Lieutenant Perry, he is Tommy in the games. and I, Yes, he is. I very much enjoyed hearing his voice come around and wish he stuck around longer. But they really, they, they it, Kansas City, it's like kind of in and out. I thought that well, that revolution was going to expand for a little longer. I know what you know her voice from, which is probably what's bothering you, which is she is Beatrice over the garden wall. Oh, God. Okay, that is insane. My goodness, that's why it was driving me crazy. She's a great actor, and I think she's so, so good in this two-episode stint, and I think that it stays the perfect amount of time. But like, kind of returning to the equilibrium of the adaptation, its expansion of its characters, its expansion of the story world, raising the, raising the stakes of the video game while also making it feel more grounded because I think there's a lot of action sequences in the video game that they cut wisely from this show. Yeah, everything in the tunnels, basically, is, yeah. is gonzo. But also th- but also things like like Joel falling onto Rebar. It, like, like that feel a little bit more like Uncharted or something where they're a little bit more elevated action. Mm-hmm. Or like towards the end of the game, they cut the whole sequence where the bus floods and Ellie has to save Joel. Oh yeah, I straight up forgot about that. And I think that's smart because it makes the, the world feel more grounded, but then at the same time, they're making the scale of the story feel way bigger than it does in the game by including all of these different forces and different people. Um, but then also, getting back to what our original point was about all of this, the incorporation of the infected in that story of like, you know, all of these people that are trying to be the, the sad little king of a sad little hill. And then the real, you know, the real threat 
that's lurking and being ignored and finally comes to literally bite them is the infected. And I think the fact that that's the first time that we see a bloater, and I think really the only time we see a bloater yep, in the that's, show. that's the one and only. And they don't even kill it, which I kind of love just showing how absolutely tanky that thing is. I, I think it's a perfect structure for this show and for this kind of adaptation, and I... I'm really taken with that story arc. And I think like, I, I just love the tone of the show and the things it picks and chooses to take from the game versus choosing to leave alone. Yeah. Big fan of the expansion on the backstory with the doctor and um, Sam has totally leukemia and the, the, all the extra goodies we get in that storyline with the new regime of Kansas city I, I almost feel like maybe there's something about, like, maybe... Oh, well, there's another faction in the second game that I don't know if you know about that maybe, hey, maybe this faction oh, yeah. evolves that. into that one a little bit. They seem like a similar kind of militant, uh, no-nonsense kind of structure. So I, I, I was wondering if they were even connecting those dots even further, which was, you know, obviously never touched on in the second game. So I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing if any of that comes back because like you're saying that that was some of a, a few of the best episodes and similarly i think the part of the game which we didn't even talk about really during our last episode because i hadn't played it yet the part of the game story-wise that works the least for me is the whole cannibal thing because it feels just really rushed and reductive and that that even though apparently they're part of this big settlement we don't really see we see the settlement but we don't see really any of the people other than the mm. The hunters. Steve guys that Joel and Ellie take out. Yeah, yeah, that is, uh, I, I liked that a lot too in this. It, it makes, it, it did make me seem like, what do we got, four humans are the real monsters? Make it five, throw in the cannibals for the game. But in, in this show, the expansion, the religious cult expansion of, of that group and David as a character, I mean, they still kept insanely faithful to that disgusting, horrible character, but... We got we got that look into the community. It felt it felt a little more worth it for them to end up in that space now that we got and, to see their 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 little dinner time prayers smacking children around. And I think frankly it makes the story more impactful for Ellie because I think my biggest problem with it in the story of the game is sure Ellie goes through something and that's the big thing that happens is Ellie goes through something, but here in the adaptation they make it more thematically resonant to Ellie. I think one of the best scenes in the whole show is, which is both pretty faithful to the game, but also the expansion is what makes it special. When she's stuck in her cell. Yes. And he's talking he's about how he's her, like, yeah. you're special, you're a leader. And I know that you're not going to be happy just being nobody. And that you have something to, like, not just because, like, because he doesn't even know she's immune yet. But that intrinsically you have something to give to other people. And you you are a leader of people. You're a shepherd. And you have to stand side by side with me to do that. You know, and not to say that it's about, I don't care about David, really. It, it doesn't show me anything more about David than I, that I needed to see in the game. But the way that impacts Ellie and the way that resonates with Ellie, and especially her relationship with Joel, is so much more interesting to me in this adaptation than it, than it is in the game. Yeah, it's it's really it really is fiery when those when those guys show up because the the winter portion of the game I remember feeling like one of the longest portions of that game and 
I know they also cut out the entire, like, winter mall portion where she's stashing him in, like, an old clothing store or whatever, but... What? What? I don't remember that in the game. Oh, oh, am I tripping? No, for sure. No, for sure. It's like, he's hurt. She's in a mall. Oh, wait a minute. Did you play uh, the Left Behind DLC? I didn't play the last the Left Behind DLC. That might have been... Nope, that was definitely it, because they cut back and forth between... The mall. The mall and the mall she is currently in in the winter where mm. she stashed Joel. That is my bad. Totally, totally brought that up out of nowhere. No, it's fine. I mean, it's fine. I just was like, I didn't play that in the game. <laughs> yeah, my. I thought when we were, when I was watching the show, I, I was I was like, oh, maybe they just cut that part. But they, they really did a great job condensing down the Left Behind DLC into that one really good flashback episode. I, I recommend honestly I recommend you play that DLC just for that episode oh, because I'm, it, it works I'm very well. I'm, yeah. I've committed this much now to playing it. I mean <laughs> I'm gonna Seamus, I am making the declaration on air I will have beaten part two by the time the second season of the show comes out. I don't believe you, Garrett, but I wish you well. I, I will I will ask up about your progress, but I'm not gonna plan them it or anything. Well but no, like, oh my god, that is a that is a oh, that's a lot, but the, but they haven't even started shooting this. That's this true. Season, that's so true. I got time. I got plenty of time. Uh, I'll wait till it starts coming out. Maybe you'll get the same kind of like ignition switch where you you get a little taste and then you go in for the for the real stuff. Well, I think what it is is I'm invested in these characters and and this Sunday when there's no new Last of Us, I'm gonna be feeling that I think and I'm gonna be like, oh, I wish I could play. Anyway, I'm invested enough that I'm gonna play the DLC. I'm gonna play that second game. Because I genuinely care about these characters in a way that I have never been able to get to that point before. Well, I very much look forward to hearing your opinions on how that game works out. And I think maybe we'll we'll get together, do a little watch party for the second season. Because that is going to be the most bizarre thing. Like, if this season was so, like, it was a pretty crystal clear adaptation for the first game. The second season is going to be all over the place. And I I just really want to know how that's going to happen. Also, if I'm being honest, the second game is always kind of the thing I've been more interested in about, or not, or since it came out, it's been the thing I've been more interested in regarding Last of Us, because I think part of my resistance to the first game, in addition to all the other things that I that I enumerated on the, the podcast the last time we talked about the game, was that it's like, you know, I'm like, this is just the same as every other apocalypse thing and i get it and i'm like good i understand you know i've again i've seen children of men i've got that kind of fix and i feel like the fact that the last of us sounds so part two sounds so much more complicated and messier and grayer and weirder and i'm into that i want to see where they are able to take now we've we've done the hero's journey we've done like the standard thing and now it's time to see where it takes us from here. And I'm I'm interested in that. And especially from the few spoilers I know about the second game, I'm very interested to see how certain events trigger <laughs> oh, yeah. character responses. <laughs> I thought you were going to say trigger the fan base again. That- <laughs> well, that's also fair, I suppose. Oh, I wanted to ask that. Is um, And I'm going to play this DLC, but do they kiss in the Left Behind DLC? Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's like okay. The so whole... that's like explicitly yes like... for one. Yes, okay. absolutely. That is that is source material. It's not like how they turned like a bitter old hermit into one of the most beautiful love stories that I've like a short yeah. film about love that I wasn't it's time expecting. To talk about 
Yeah, it's time to talk about them. Yeah, Bill and Frank, the the making me cry episode three. What the hell, man? That is an excellent episode of television. It's it. I truly almost consider it like a short film. It's so incredible, and considering that it's like one hundred, almost one hundred percent original. I don't know if Druckmann had this tucked in his back pocket and he like cut it from the original game, but it is. It's beautiful. It is so heartbreaking and touching, and I would almost watch an entire show of just their time together. But what we got in in the really well-structured uh, time jumps between their like important moments in their life together, I thought it was just perfection. I think this is one of the places where I feel like the outlook of this show has so much more hope than the outlook of the game. Because even there are some very bleak moments in this show. The whole part in the first episode where... You see the, the the little kid wandering in and Fedra interviewing him. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. you see Joel dumping, dumping his body onto the fire. Yeah, that that's, just, like, stone-cold stare. He doesn't care. He's burning a child's corpse. Ugh. That's, like, I think that is maybe honestly bleaker than really most things in the game. But you take a story like Bill and Frank, where it's a story about, in the game, how animosity between people and driving them away leads to regret and it's it, it's a cautionary tale for joel it's it's like you know see what could happen between you and tommy or you and ellie or you and whoever you know like sure yeah and pushing people away is not the answer to solving your problems because look at what happened to these miserable guys and look at how sad and alone and crazy they are and look at how ellie looks at them and do you want her to look at you that way and then you take the show, which is the opposite. It's this aspirational, it's even in the darkest of times, in the worst possible scenario, after the end of the world, this lonely, sick man who never fit in in, in real society is able to find salvation and solace in loving another person. And that Joel, if that, if a person as broken as that, who is so explicitly compared to you, is able to do that, maybe you can find redemption too. And that it's, it's a yearning. And I think that that yearning, I think actually better sets up Joel's ultimate decision at the end of this game, which is there is a world and a life to be had, even despite all of this. And that I'm going to fight to protect that, not because I'm scared of, like, I mean, you know, it's it's weird, it's a weird, like, slight view adjustment, but it turns it from something that's, like, like that's a little bit more cynical and, um, like, like, myopic to something that I really under, I understand it's, like, more saving the thing that you love. I sound like Star Wars. I was gonna say, Rose Tico like. whom? Um, but, it, but like, you, you understand what I'm saying? I think you're following me? Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's ultimately, in the show, way more impactful altogether, even if they had cut to a surviving Bill who has turned into what he is in the game, and, like, they have those interactions, and you can see that he's a huge piece of garbage because he's got all this hate in his heart now. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the work that they do between Frank and Bill together... Like what you're saying, it, it it changes that perspective to, like, if you give yourself to everyone, like, your destroyed world can be some kind of whole again. And I was scared because they were doing those time jumps and it was like, 
they were getting later and later into their relationship, and they started showing, like, really, like, they were really at odds with each other for a long time, and a lot of the stuff where I was like, oh, they're leading Bill, Nick Offerman, if we haven't said that, God bless him, he's incredible yeah. in this episode. He's great. They're leading him down the path to be the character that we know, but instead, it's, it's uh it hurts me to think about, man, them... Because the, the, also the entire episode, as somebody that didn't know much about this episode, I was for sure that, you know, Bill was going to, like, he didn't take enough pills to kill himself, and he's going to yeah. wake up and find his, you know, his dead husband and become the broken man he once was again. But the way they ended, keeping the window open and the, the long, you know, pan oh. back through their open window on, their, on Joel and Ellie successfully getting all the supplies they needed it was it just broke me man and i also think that that's another prime example of oh also quickly i just want to shout out murray bartlett who is the other half of that duo who's also great incredible incredible together but the fact that that's the window like for like the iconic last of us loading screen which is that that fluttering open window the fact that they adapt that into this episode specifically, I think, sums up a lot of what the showrunners are are trying to say with this episode and what kind of capsule it can be for the larger world. And like that, I mean, that's a thesis statement. It really is having that window be your adaptation. Oh man, it it so it, even thinking about like that window, it's like the the main menu. I think is that window. That's I what. Yeah, say. that's what I'm and saying. It's like, it, like overgrown and dirty and all that horror. Yeah, I I completely get what you're saying. It, it is spinning that right around. It's giving that hope that kind of like you were saying before. It makes Joel's decision at the Firefly Hospital feel like you know he is still making that painful decision, but he knows that he's doing it for you know the love in his heart and, and the the love he has for this girl. And I think that. I talked about episode three being the catalyst, the turning point for this show for me, where sure it was expanded version. The first two episodes were an expanded version of the video game, but it was still pretty much like what I expected this show to be as an adaptation of the video game. And the depth of character expands so much when you get past this episode. By the time you get to Tommy and that conversation that they have in in the cobbler shop. Between Tommy oh, and God, Joel. Yeah. Where he's, he's begging I, him to take her to where she needs to go. And you're getting so much deeper into Joel's psyche. Who he is as a man. Who he is as a character. Than you ever do in the game. And I'm so grateful that they were able to bring that humanity in. Again, that's nothing against Troy Baker or the writing in the video game. But no, there's of, some of things that not. you can't do in that medium that you can in this one. And this one is taking full advantage of it. I love the conversation where we see Ellie find out about Sarah. That whole episode, very similarly to episode three, takes something that's a pretty short, very surface level element of the game and opens up the cracks. Open. And I know that you see more of that community in part two. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if you knew that the that Jackson in this first season looks like ident- like they got that set dressing down. Yeah. It looks identical to part two. But they crack open that world and those characters and really have the field day in it that because that is the crucial turning point. That is the midpoint event of both the video game and the series of Joel. Like it's the part where Joel is admitting to himself that he cares enough about Ellie to stay with her and it's not just a job. Like that's where their relationship changes. Yes. Exactly. And that's where they become, even though 
ironically, it's marked by it by him saying, "You're definitely my not my daughter, and I'm definitely not your dad." That is the moment where they become they really do become those roles to each other. And again, it goes from like a seeing them at the dam in the game is again it's it's more like a cynical emptier hollower version of what community is mm. and and Joel is like this like Moses like promised land guy where he can he never goes into the town in the first game you know it's always just out of reach but now it's aspirational now he's been to the town now he sees the the life that can be had there when they're watching the goodbye girl all of the town hall <laughs> i was wondering what that movie was richard dreyfus in the goodbye girl 1977 probably never heard of it it's supposed to be good i've not seen it it's been <laughs> on my watch list forever but at the end when he when he says to tommy you know tommy says to him rather there'll be a place for you here and he says, I am counting on it. And that line is not in the game. I'm counting oh, on is it. it not? Tommy says, there's a place for you here. But Joel doesn't say back, I'm counting on it. Oh. And I think, again, it turns it into, it's not something you're afraid of. It's not something that you're, like, it's not the cautionary tale. It's the the goal. It's yeah, the it's thing the that Joel wants of a life. more than anything. And that's where I think that the, the tone of this adaptation is really changed from the game. Now, whether that's better or worse is up for debate. Like, for example, I think something that's actually, even though I think they handled it really well, something that's actually I think played worse in the in the show is the hospital shooting. Because even though it is not shown to be glorified and they played, like, the sad music under mm-hmm. it, it's still, it's blocked more like an action sequence. Whereas in the game, it feels like that, you know, that Seamus, if I say the words no Russian to you. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. It feels like you're a mass shooter in the game. It doesn't feel like an action sequence. It feels like you're the, like you're the bad guy. And I think that they they rob him of that a little bit in this finale. And part of that is because they're doing all this work back through the season of like, you know what Joel wants, you know, he's more sympathetic because you know what he wants and what he's reaching for instead of what he's cold and tired and afraid of. This show was was so much better than I ever expected it would be. Even up until the last episode, I was like kind of ready for them to flub it a little bit, but agreed. It's all there. It's it's all there and I'm I'm very excited for another season. I want to look into Pedro Pascal's tired, tearful eyes a lot more cuz that just it, breaks me down it's insane to me that's why they got to cover it it's not safe for television (laughs) on the mandalorian you know yeah exactly that's why they're no that's why they had no spores no gas masks you gotta have direct eye contact with the saddest man of all time last thing i want to talk about that or at least that i have to talk about is i think the best deployed cameo from any of the game cast is ashley johnson as ellie's mother which at least as far as i am aware is not at all in the video game that was completely written for this show or at least if it was written for the games they never went through with it i thought that was masterfully done you could the the look of recognition that me and Kara gave each other when we heard her like grunt in pain and we're like oh mm-hmm. we've played uh, like 250 hours of this of this noise over and over again we get it we get what's happening here I th- I thought that was incredible and I think that actually something that connected for me during that episode was I was like actually Ashley Johnson and Bella Ramsey kind of do look Dude, alike and that's yes. really good casting I w- 
Exactly. Oh my goodness. Because I think she did a lot more of the mocap for the second game than the first game, and it's just like it. They look a lot alike. They have that. It's like the eyes and the cheeks seem. I think to, the like, nose too. I think there's something in the they just, nose. They just look all together really, yeah. really alike. And I think that is a one explaining Ellie's immunity is something that I actually really appreciate. I think it makes more sense for this adaptation than it does for the game to explain Ellie's immunity. But does it make sense at all? in the lore i guess what is the lore it's it's okay. evil zombie spores i guess i was anything thinking about this actually this is stupid but i was thinking about it <laughs> okay so the implication right is that when her mother gets bit and so she is simultaneously giving birth to ellie some of the cordyceps make their way through the umbilical cord mm-hmm. to ellie but not so much that when ellie's switchblade is used to cut her own umbilical cord yeah um, crazy badass she becomes a walker or, or an infected not a, a day walker. walker this is not the walking dead man there is so much walking i gotta talk oh, about that dude, there's yeah. so much walking dead on the show it's For crazy sure. I, it made me want to go back and watch the first season the of first the walking season dead the <laughs> um, because that's a good season of television. <laughs> anyway, back to Ellie, though. I was thinking about it. I was like, a vaccine is a small amount of something that your body can... Like, your brand new body that thinks everything is harmful and is on ho- the highest alert it can possibly be in your life. To synthesize a little bit amount of that and turn it into, you know, stay away from this body. This is bad stuff. That's what a vaccine is. It I, makes sense I to guess me. I so. I mean... I- does that work with mutated flower spores? And I'm and not saying most... I'm a scientist, Seamus, <laughs> but I am saying for a layman, I think that is actually a really smart way to have explained away, especially because they make it very clear in the game and the, the show, unless, of course, I don't know something from part two, which don't tell me anything if this is incorrect. <laughs> how rare Ellie's condition is like there as far as anybody's aware there's never been anybody that's been a little bit immune and I think this specific circumstance of how that would happen is so specific it is so specific it really is how on earth would anybody even replicate that you know that, that you're not wrong I I think that it's it's not like I, I'm not throwing out the season because of that but I, I I guess I just have to take it on its face I guess it's a zombie show about mushroom spores that infect the entire world that that can clock for sure and that also even lends itself to in the game Marlene when when Joel wakes up in the hospital and Marlene explains what's happening if I'm remembering cor- correctly it's it's way more vague about like like we might be able to maybe possibly synthesize a cure that might work if we no, go through with she's this. pretty explicit as somebody who just played that level <laughs> okay um, yeah you tell me she's pretty explicit about like Joel they're gonna be able to make a vaccine like again which may makes Joel's decision even bleaker because at least to me and we and this is something that I do this is the biggest thing that I feel like we were robbed of talking about in the game episode that I hadn't finished the game so I didn't have an opinion on it Joel makes the objectively incorrect decision the most selfish decision he can make even though we understand where he's coming from what the humanity of that decision is he has it's one life or millions it's something Ellie would choose to do and he makes it anyway and i think the game is emphatic about the cure being a sure thing because they need you to know that like (laughs) 
and he is you... absolutely doing the wrong thing. That's so to, to, to this day, I, I remember that as like it's way less sure than how they explain it in the show, where it's like we're gonna take these cordyceps, we're gonna put them in a petri dish, and we're to gonna... be fair, they're less va- they're more vague about the science. I guess like the all. wording of it all. Sure. Um, something I'm gonna say about the game, which is a knock on the game, unfortunately, <laughs> is the dialogue is so much better in this show than it is in the game. The dialogue in the, the dialogue's game is real good rough. in the show. Yeah, I I know what you mean. They they put in some extra work on that front for sure because the dialogue's very snappy, very good. So yeah, um, but are you ready for round two, Garrett? We got we have two episodes of Mandalorian to talk about because we're, uh, we, we didn't eat our vegetables, Seamus. I know, dude. Well, there's a doctor you can see about that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hey, get into that more in like just that. a second. <laughs> For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about the video game adaptation curse. Despite video games being one of the most popular entertainment formats in history. The attempt to adapt video games onto the big screen has almost always resulted in messy, half-baked efforts that leave neither moviegoers nor video game fans satisfied. The beginning of the so-called video game curse began in 1993, with the first major attempt to adapt a video game to the big screen with Super Mario Bros. The Movie. Featuring a fairly highbrow cast including Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo, and Dennis Hopper, the film was a massive flop and is often listed as one of the worst films ever made. The film fell into many traps, which frequently befall video game films, including an attempt to put more logic into the fantasy story, and ultimately disappointed fans of Super Mario games worldwide. Though some have dedicated cult followings, most if not all of the famous video game film and television adaptations, including Resident Evil, Prince of Persia, Doom, The Legend of Zelda, and Assassin's Creed, are at best considered jokes, and at worst are completely disowned by the fan community. Interestingly, some of the best-received video game media is that which captures the spirit and aesthetics of video games without trying to directly adapt any specific one. These include films like Tron, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Wreck-It Ralph, and arguably the Tom Cruise time loop movie Edge of Tomorrow. With shorts like Dan Trachtenberg's Portal No Escape and a 2018 Uncharted short featuring Nathan Fillion as Nathan Drake being some of the most celebrated live-action interpretations of iconic video game franchises. Many even speculate that the Fillion Uncharted film led to renewed work on Sony's official adaptation starring Tom Holland. In recent years, video game adaptations have started to break the curse. With the success of films like Detective Pikachu and Sonic the Hedgehog, and shows like HBO's The Last of Us, which has quickly become one of the most celebrated adaptations in history. While some recent video game franchises such as Uncharted and Mortal Kombat still struggle to break through into more widespread success, the newer trend of game developers and directors carrying over to work on the live-action versions of their stories has started to prove its success. With iconic games like God of War and Death Stranding facing impending adaptations, hopefully the recent improvement in quality will remain going forward. I want to give a little shout-out to, I think the Tomb Raider movie with (laughs) Alicia Vikander is not terrible. It is a very one-to-one remake of the of the game reboot that came out in 2013 right. yes i did know that and it's not amazing or anything but walton goggins is there i know you're excited about that I and that. i don't think i don't think it is as bad as the vast majority of video game films and i also want to shout out werewolves within which is also like the most tangentially video game film ever but sam richardson uh and a bunch of other really talented folks are in that one and it it's worth checking out. I was so excited when the Aaron Paul Need for Speed movie was announced. 
for no real particular reason, I was just like, hey, this is kind of a new, fresh, like, they could they could have an interesting angle on car racing. Fast and the Furious is doing spy stuff now. We need something going on here. But, man, I didn't even, I, I think I saw, like, a part of it at one point, and that was just another one for the, for the funeral pyre of these terrible adaptations. And I think it kind of begs the question, which we touched on a little bit during our Last of Us discussion, which is, some of these games are basically already movies, and do they need to, or TV shows for that matter, and do they really need to be adapted? Like, Uncharted, I think that... As much as I would love to see a good Uncharted movie, the idea of adapting Uncharted into a movie kind of misses the point of Uncharted, (laughs) which is they want to put you in the action movie. They want you to feel like you're in the action movie. And if you take Uncharted and transplant it into a, a, a passive format, you're kind of just doing knockoff Indiana Jones. Yeah, that is that's where it always kind of gets hit from, I feel like. When, when I think about something like the Metal Gear Solid movie, which will maybe come out one day, I'm like, will it ever be Listen, better Jordan's than... Jordan's been having health problems, <laughs> man. Know, it's not his fault. I, it's no one's fault. It's it, That property specifically has been thrown around to a million different people that have just never been able to follow through for whatever reason. But my question is, is it gonna even hold a candle to Escape from New York, which is what, like, one of, if not the largest influence on Metal Gear Solid or Snake as a character. I was gonna I, say, Patch wearing Snake was influenced by I, Metal Gear Solid like, Kojima, New York. Kojima won't shut his mouth about Snake Plissken. I'm telling you, he's straight <laughs> up. Oh, he loves. I, I, you know that the he literally names a character Plissken in the second game. Did, yes, I yes, do know of that. course. It's you're you're not wrong. I feel like most, if not all, of the failed ones are just inspired by something great to be something great as an interactive piece of media, and then just flush down the toilet to go back to a knockoff of what it was already very successfully inspired by. I mean, I'm looking at you, Resident Evil. There's nothing there for me ever. Even the reboots, the the new one on Netflix, the show, whatever the hell, it's it's all it's all garbo. And we just got done talking about how Last of Us as an adaptation is successful because it is able to use the pastiche of the genre that Last of Us is set in and expand on it by se- and not let it be a weakness. It's like, hey, we know that this is kind of a routine apocalypse story so let us luxuriate in that and find little corners that the game didn't have that we can expand in and live in and like god of war i am so skeptical about Mm. being adapted because how else that story is so linear and already been so well told and there's not really a lot of room for that kind of exploration i don't know i believe anything can be good but i'm like what's the point of making a god of war adaptation is kind of Mm. my my stance And on the opposite side of that, something like Death Stranding, which is already the most unique, bizarre property of all time. You'll 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 hear Kojima say it again. He's it's the world's first strand type genre video game and it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's the one and only, man. That's yeah, I got it. But that kind of adaptation where it's like, hey, here is the weirdest baseline and you can like expand in any direction possible because of the tighter kind of story that is in a world that can 
you know, people love and there can be more things that happen in that world, that's where that kind of success can come from. But, I mean, I'll keep my mind open on God of War and I'm sure you'll keep your mind open on Death Stranding. And Hell, I'll, st- I'll watch another Mortal Kombat, I guess. Warner Brothers, give it to me. Mortal Kombat is an interesting one because that... I feel like that is one that's a no-brainer. Like, you can, you should just be able to adapt that into a good movie. <laughs> and every single adaptation that I've seen, at least, completely misses what makes Mortal Kombat cool. You, you sound like the executive pitching the Street Fighter movie to Jean-Claude Van Damme. You're like, we can get it right, man. They don't know what they're doing. We can totally make this right. And it's just, oh, so... We didn't even talk about the Street Fighter movie and how incredibly bad that is. <laughs> uh, there are... Yeah, I mean, we could waste an entire episode going down that rabbit hole about what bad video game adaptations there are. I mean, we have. We've wasted wasted an entire episode on that Mortal Kombat movie that came out. Dude, we really did. That was a main segment. What were we thinking? Oh, that was was in the the era of... The COVID-19 pandemic. Oh my god, a new movie. It's on streaming. I feel like that literally was the first new movie we covered post-pandemic. Wonder Woman might have been before that. I, I think it was Mortal Kombat first because that was like it was huge when they dropped that on HBO Max. Yeah, that was that was some rough stuff, man. I'm I'm trying to I'm going back through our episode catalog right now and trying to see if we've covered any other bad video game adaptations. But I think you and I are usually just smart enough to like stay <laughs> away from those. Get out of there, yeah. But what do you say we actually kick it on over to round two this time? And yeah, round get... two more more Pedro culture reference. We've worked in all of our options <laughs> yes! now. Yes. What our broadcasting location is going to be. Thank God. All right. Well, let's get into it before we backtrack on video games. Now it's time for Mando Bros, where we break down the latest two episodes of The Mandalorian. So that's episodes two and three of season three of the Mandalorian, the minds of Mandalore and the convert. I I'm turning around a little bit on this season. Yeah. Like I'm shocked to say it, Seamus. I I'm, I'm almost shocked to say it right here. It's, it's my expect. Maybe it's cause our expectations were rock bottom. They, they were in the bottom of the minds of Mandalore. They were, it was, you know, I was, it was a fine first episode, I suppose, but now we're, we're kind of in the thick of it and they're kind of getting things done that I thought they were going to be meandering around for the entire season. So I'm, I'm pretty jazzed that, that they're, they're taking that and what I thought I I definitely knew that they were going to do. And they're, they're kind of leaving it more open-ended after this third episode. I completely agree. I think they're getting down to brass tacks and instead of putzing around with a million different side quests, they're like, Oh wow. Actually story progression really fast in, in this next episode. But it's still not amazing. I think that specifically the second episode, had it been a first season Mando episode, would be mid-tier season one, but is now so much better than what we've been getting oh, that yeah. we're like, oh, some good food <laughs> finally. Oh, yeah, we get we get to... And I'm not even, there's a couple, like, real hard first two season callbacks that didn't make me exhausted and, you know, felt like they mattered a little more in the wider breadth of what this third season might turn into. I'm enjoying it. I'm looking forward to Wednesday again because we're kind of, we're kind of getting to a point where unless they're just going to kind of, you know, limp along a little bit, we're like crazy things are about to happen. Like big, big things that they haven't even hinted at 
that are about to go down. I'm kind of shocked. Yeah, it'll it'll be very interesting to see what all happens on on this season of Mando Bros. And I think that with how much they got done in these episodes, that's most of what we can say. I was yeah, exactly that we we need to we need to get down to brass tacks and kind of dissect these a little bit. I they almost feel like a a, a pretty substantial like two parter. Like uh, it's it's a little weird. Weirdly, that... even though most of that that third episode has nothing to do with what <laughs> yeah, happens in yeah. the second episode. It's like they had a they had like twenty more minutes than they could air for that second episode, and they were like, tack it on to the first fifteen minutes of the third one, and then we'll get into the real the real. That's goodies. exactly what I thought during the episode. Okay, so we're officially in spoilers now. That's exactly what I thought watching the third episode. I was like, they couldn't have just like stuck this at the end of the second episode. <laughs> Like, forget give me a whole Dr. Penn Pershing episode. Give me the, give me the series, man. Like, this is, we're, I don't, I don't want to besmirch one thing or another, but I, I was getting my little IV drip of Andor with this episode three. It is, I mean, it's nowhere near as good as Andor, let's be clear. Absolutely but... not. But it, it was given, it was giving me a little, little something. It was, it wasn't Mandalorian. That's what it, it was. It wasn't samey. I, I think that's the problem that Mandalorian is, it's just samey. And now when we get anything different, we're like, whoa, <laughs> this is really crazy is. that they're doing something different. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that, that is really what it is. We have to get the we have to get the minds of Mandalore out of the way before we talk about our boy Pershing. I think even though they go together, um, because really minds of Mandalore is. They go to Mandalore. Well, actually, no. They do a fake out on us. <laughs> I was like, when when he lands and we see Amy Sedaris, I was like, we are not doing a Tatooine <laughs> episode. I cannot, oh, I my... cannot take a Tatooine episode right now. This my my blood me. ran cold when she said, "Oh, you're here to see Boba Fett," and I was like, "No, he's not. Don't don't you do that. Don't you offer him that." Uh, and they did the one thing that they could redeem themselves for doing <laughs> by going to Tatooine, and that is giving me more R five. 5d4 content <laughs> the champion who is somehow becoming like a main character in this little group here i i kind of lo- they ditched uh, ig11 instantly i don't even know if they're going back to that at all but i don't know that it's so weird i think that like the first episode of the season feels so disconnected from <laughs> these yeah. two episodes it's crazy they set up an adventure that doesn't happen and doesn't matter it's kind of weird what if those pirates just never show up again <laughs> <laughs> i will say it's kind of weird that she didn't give him the BD droid that she had last time, who we know in Fallen Order does this exact kind of stuff. Oh, but that's he's too valuable for the shop. She's scamming folks in Mossy's, yeah. but she's gotta she's gotta keep it together. Even her good friend Mando. Oh, always. She she installed that R R five port for him in an, in a second. I, I was gonna say, how weird is it that? <laughs> Grogu's little bubble can also just be a functioning astrobeck. But thing it's like again, she like remo- I, guess. I I don't know. I kind of like the bubble. I, I, whatever. They're just like go in your pod, Grogu, off screen, and, and that's that's what we have now. <laughs> And I think that's one of the things that annoyed me is I'm like, I don't like the, the, one of the things that's appealing about the first season of The Mandalorian is a lot of it feels very tactile and it feels very like you're interacting with real things Mm -hmm. and like we are seeing him handle Grogu and put him in the pod and Grogu has the ball that's from the steering thing on the spaceship and everything else. And now it's just like, oh, we don't want to deal with that. So it happens off screen. And then The Mandalorian walks somewhere. 
And I think we get back to a little bit of the tactility in this Mandalore episode where you looked at me like I was crazy town when I said, I think we're going to Mandalore next week. Um, <laughs> right? You were right. It was so easy. They're just like, oh, nobody's checked since somebody told somebody else that you can't land on this massive planet. And I mean, it's a pretty like there's even though I think it's a pretty good episode. Also, really, it's like they fight some guys. They go down to the planet core. Oh, ex- 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 excuse me. They go down to the planet core for like 20 minutes in two different segments. They take forever to do that. That's true. That's true. But then Mando gets got by the weird spider leg thing, which is cool. I think that's a cool yes, thing. And we, I, <laughs> we were admiring this disgusting spider eyeball robot guy. And I want to know more about him, but I don't want him to be tied to anything else. I just want him to be cool. And like, I want it to be like, you know... Back in the day when they would have something weird like this as a one-off thing in Star Wars, and then they would build out an entire bizarre disconnected <laughs> yes, backstory exactly. for it. Like the visual encyclopedia of the Mandalorian season three would like have a, a arrow pointing to that guy and be like, he was a he's a mutated Mandalorian who's been living on robot parts and blood? What was he doing to him in that like rotisserie chicken? I, I'm a, I'm, he was like draining him. Yeah. Like, like for pourquoi, Garrett? Like what is the purpose of this little guy? At Maybe first, that keeps the weird eyeball alive that seems to be the only organic part yeah, of him left. I, I guess that I guess that makes sense, but like at, at first the, they do that lovely little jump scare in the mines that that it got to me, but Yeah, it got me too actually. I, I was like, "Oh, it's it's the Beskar mines. It's a it's a remnant of like a Beskar mining droid that is like detecting that he can harvest the armor or something, but they just kind of sticks him with a needle and he kicks his little blood pumping robot and then grogu goes and grogu goes on snow white's scary adventures at disneyland (laughs) back to the the pod oh my god yeah i mean i i was a little um i was a little questioning when bo katan was just like oh we gotta go help mando i guess all my weird beef is gone but then i'm like but then i'm like she has this weird she can't like she could just leave him to die she could have just shot and killed him at some point maybe i was gonna say like i feel like all the narrative momentum of she needs a dark saber so she's gonna kick his butt from the end of season two is just gone like I don't know what's if anything I don't I don't want to I don't want to tell tales out of school Seamus about Bo and Din sitting in a mine K I S S I N I N but it seems like they're good, good one <laughs> thank you <laughs> good spelling didn't find any anything wrong with that thank you <laughs> I went to I went to college um <laughs> it seems like that maybe they have a thing going on a little bit it's possible I I almost feel like there are a few things her integration she is she is walking the path now garrett she's bathed that's a season in the or that's episode three but yes i'll let all oh allow, i'm sorry i'm sorry i'll allow, I ju- the, I'll allow the jump all thank it's you all, it's thank all the same story <laughs> I, I i think while there there is some budding chemistry that she is like just being weird and friendly now but i think maybe her journey is through dinjarin back to the way of the mandalorian and that's maybe how she's gonna earn her rights back as, as some kind of ruler. Well, I think she's going to earn her rights back by, like her ancestors, as Quill would say, <laughs> riding the great <laughs> Mythosaur. 
oh, how are they going to get that thing out of there? They went through, like, a <laughs> tiny tunnel. That thing is huge. It's like, it, you know, it's going to be like, they're going to burst out of the ceiling like it's Green Gods. There you go. It, it, tremor style, it's just going to burrow or something. I didn't know Mythosaurs breathed water. Is that something I knew, maybe? That's I don't weird. think we knew. Well, the Mythosaur, I believe, as its name would imply, <laughs> is believed, even in the Star Wars universe, to be a mythological creature and not real. That is that is fair. That is fair. Which is why it's so crazy that they see the mythosaur in the, the water. Mythosaur. And why at the end of season three, or episode three, I keep saying season three, it is season three. But at <laughs> the end is. of episode three, she's looking at that Beskar mythosaur skull being like, I, I bet these zealots would follow me if I was riding the mythosaur. Hell yeah, honestly, I, I'm down for that. Give me the upgraded version of that Book of Boba Fett Rancor stuff. It actually oh. have some stuff happen with it. And I think this is actually the most interesting direction they can go with this stupid cult that I hate, which is <laughs> Bo-Katan doesn't want to walk the way of the Mandalore, but she is now real. Like, her army was disloyal. They left her. Who is more loyal? Than a cult of religious zealots. Nobody. <laughs> that, that is true. That is true. She could rise them up through the ranks, get them back to Mandalore somehow. I don't She's know how they're going to have them drink in the living waters, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. I, they're giving us little snippets about this cult now that they could make it more interesting, but they're also not doing that specifically. They're kind of... All their eggs are in the, I really hope people watching this are just admiring the different colored Mandalorian armor basket, and I... Oh, the, the Lego guys <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's also what I was thinking. I need the, the Mandalore col- or the, the Mandalorian cult hideout playset, where I can just have a bunch of little little different Mando armors. Also, Paz Vizsla not looking too happy at the end of that episode, I will say. Yeah, oh man. There's, there's your infighting right there. It's gonna be half of the cult is following him to overthrow maybe Dinjar maybe maybe Bo-Katan whoever whoever I mean, lays claim first don't don't forget who teenage Bo-Katan was a terrorist with oh yeah was pre Vizsla like his what is yeah. I'm assuming brother or uncle or something that is true I I almost forgot about that I mean Bo-Katan has and I hope they get into this a little bit more this season Bo-Katan has a very checkered past Bo-Katan was a Mandalorian terrorist who only left the terrorist organization because they were siding with Darth Maul. <laughs> yeah, it took a lot to get her to, to see the light there a little bit. I mean, like, she to Grogu, she's like, I, I hung out with Jedi sometime, and it's like, you want to tell them, like, how you met, or, like, what you did with them, <laughs> exactly. or whatever. Like, like, you helped out Ahsoka once. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, yeah, now, in, in Ahsoka, the show, when it comes out, when they meet, and they're like, my old friend, Bo-Katan, we have such history together. I am, actually, I, I hope that the, I don't want the, because the Ahsoka show, I feel like I'm putting all of my Clone Wars, all of my everything <laughs> hopes All on. of your Rebels hopes? I mean, obviously, Rebels are coming. Hera is coming, as you and I were discussing the other night. Yes. Um, but... I think that I would be interested in seeing Bo-Katan and Ahsoka interact some more. I think that's how... Maybe not in the first season of the Ahsoka show. I don't know what the trajectory is of all this. It's probably more likely going to be the the Defenders season, where they're like, it's just <laughs> a show called Star Wars, where they all team up to fight <laughs> that's Thrawn. That's so funny. Oh my god. Which I, uh... they tease 
at the beginning of this episode, they're like, that's way too many Thai defenders for Moff Gideon. You think? It's like, I wonder who uh, they could be from. Goodness gracious. I, no, I'm stumbling over my thoughts here, really. I, I don't know. I guess I need to know what they're doing with the man. I, is all I'm saying. As, as somebody who's <laughs> newly caught up with everything, I need, I need more Thrawn stuff, but I also would like it to not be, like, in a muddy part of a Mandalorian season that we yeah. might not end up liking altogether. You need it to be handled well, which is what I'm worried about with the Ahsoka show, because I would way rather have animated Rebels than whatever is going to happen there, <laughs> frankly. And I'm I'm pretty worried about it. I am. I, I don't think that's something I've said to you yet, because you, you, you don't think, just finished Rebels. <laughs> you don't think Zeb is going to look like a psychopath in live action? I don't think Zeb. I don't think, I don't think we're getting Zeb. I think we're getting Ezra, Sabine, and Hera, and I'm Chopper, obviously. Chopper for sure. And I think that's what we're getting. God help me, maybe Hondo. We know he's alive. Hondo, as we discussed last week, I think Hondo would be a good addition to this show. Maybe not as a main component, but I want to go back to the opening of episode three, where that opening battle is the best action we've seen in The Mandalorian in, I think, since the season two opener. Wait, the episode three intro was which battle? Where they are fighting all the TIE defenders, oh, and Mando's, yes. like, jumping out of his cockpit, <laughs> uh, or out of, out of Bo-Katan's fighter into his cockpit and they do the batman 89 shot where he goes <laughs> up in the air and falls back down dude and i love it bo katan pulls a crazy ivan from firefly and dude they're, uh, they're killing it this episode that that like if <laughs> they should do a whole dogfight episode and i would be fully there for it it, it kind of reminds me of the first episode when i was like oh there's a starship fight that actually has me interested finally but yeah. it was like all together really awesome especially because it was on um, whatever dwarf planet is orbiting Mandalore that Bo-Katan is yep. from, and it's all like oceans and mountains, and I, 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 I loved it. Groku says this is the way, kind of, which is <laughs> funny. That was a good joke. I, I gotta say, I think part of the reason that that episode was so good, and this is not to knock like other directors like Deborah Chow and Rick Famuyiwa, who I think do great work on the show, but the guy who directed this episode, episode three, which we're I think we're about to get into the <laughs> yes. real meat of episode three, is Lee Isaac Chung, who's the guy who directed Minari, like the what? Steven really? Yun movie. That's crazy. What? I did not I did not clock that when I watched myself, but that is some prestige, you know, filmmaker coming in coming in hot here. Because the the real story that's going on in episode three of this season is a side story featuring Operation Paperclipped Space Eugenics uh, <laughs> Dr. Pershing oh. and his new life on Coruscant. Dude, yeah, friendship with Cyril Karn ended. New best friend, Dr. Penn Pershing. Loves uh, this he, stuff. He's not quite as pathetic as Cyril Karn, but he's getting there. I'll no, say it. Def- there's no one more pathetic than Cyril Karn, but... <laughs> Cause, but he wants to do good. I for a for a minute I wasn't sure who is gonna betray who here. Who's still working for Gideon for sure? Which one of you, which I one mean, of these? One of you is still is still sitting in the episode three Revenge of the Sith Opera House saying we should do space eugenics. <laughs> yeah, well, that is that is true. That, that that caught me off guard a little bit. We got to see that little hallway where where blue George Lucas is standing around. <laughs> That's exactly my thought as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, but yeah. Th- 
thrilling. We got Pen Pershing in his Blade Runner fit, which I thought he looked fabulous in. Um, yeah, I agree. I'm always up for more everyday life on Coruscant now that we got like the pinnacle of that in Andor, and I, I think it's really interesting structurally to see the the goings on of the New Republic and and how the imminent collapse of the New Republic is going to definitely lead to the New Order and all that kind of stuff and how ineffective it seems to be in all of their new mandates. I I was just really in love with all of that extra stuff in this one. Yeah, I love the, you know, they're trying they they're trying to be better than the Empire by rehabbing people who work for the Empire that maybe weren't evil, but also they're giving them numbers just like stormtroopers mm-hmm. and they're they're constricting them and treating them like dro- and I mean, I think a lot of people probably online who have uh, certain opinions about the sequels are going to be like the new republic they're making the new republic just as bad as the empire i don't <laughs> like that and, uh, and, kylo like, ren kylo ren was right right guys and i don't think i wouldn't go anywhere near that far because i think they're doing they're they're showing us i think a kind of nuanced not it's not quite as nuanced as andor but actually like a kind of politically minded real world minded take on what is it like when a massive regime falls and a new bureaucracy has to take its place and it's like you know there are elements of fascism that are going to remain unless actively fought against yeah it's this level of this desire for the order that is needed to run that level of government but it's like you can't you can't really have that kind of order without a few mind flayer devices lying around that you can uh, very subtly brainwash people into being happy about it's 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 very weird and I, I like kind of seeing the shadows of that all and I like that I think this is the most interest like probably the most distinct way to compare it to Andor is like Andor they're trying to lean into the noir pastiche like there's a guy who's caught up in intrigue political intrigue in the big city he's doing espionage stuff and you know they even have like the guy looking over his newspaper on the train and stuff <laughs> Hell, but, there's a femme fatale angle going on around here. But despite leaning into that, they there is almost no visual change to the way the show is. Like, Andor <laughs> yeah. looks like a noir. This looks like an episode of The Mandalorian. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping that Scrapyard was going to be a little more Scrapyard, you know what I mean? It just yeah. kind of looked like a big video game. Here's the entrance to the thing, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, not even, because the, the Scrap, the Imperial, the, well, it's not the, it's an Imperial. It's a Old Republic scrapyard. Scrapyard for Imperial stuff? But in, like, I was going to say, comparing it to the scrapyard and Fallen Order, it's way more clean and, yeah. and just, you know, it's it leaves something to be desired. But I do think the production design overall in this episode was really well done. I want that weird space six-pack. I want to go and buy that at Galaxy's Edge, and I want you and me to split that. Space six-pack? When they're all sitting around in the courtyard, and they've got, like, (laughs) they've got... It's it's like a stacked cups, kind of. And they, like, connect together, and they, like, pop (laughs) out of each other, and it's a six-pack. It's literally a six-pack of whatever they're drinking. And I want to go to Galaxy's Edge and buy those. I would love to do that we'll get we'll get a six pack of those and uh some of those glowing popsicles that look like they would kill you if you ate them at <laughs> I was say, grand day. I'm like i don't know about <laughs> that there's lots of star wars stuff that i would eat i mean again probably coming to a theme park near you where you could just where they're gonna have a glowing 
stick inside a popsicle, or I'm sure you can probably go on DisneyParks.com and buy those Imperial Biscuits right now. Oh, dude, honestly, they look kind of good. I kind of want to try those out, but, uh... You think they're like, you think they're like a shortbread, you think, is that... Yeah, it kind of looked like it, but it almost looked like, it looked too dense, you know? It looked like it was very packed. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, yeah, we'll have to try those. Yes, <laughs> God, yes, and, and when we go to the Disney Parks food court and it's just every Star Wars food out there. But if we want to talk about the actual, you know, character <laughs> stuff yes, going on yes. in this episode, I like that Pershing is having such a difficult time adapting to his new life. And it's not just things like, oh, like, I feel bad about what I did. I mean, that stuff is there too. But I'm also enjoying, like, he doesn't know how to live in the big city. Like, he's scared of the train. (laughs) Yeah, the the droid yells at him, and he's so sorry for trying to touch the top of the mountain, you know? Which, I love that mountain from the High Republic showing up. Hell yeah. And I think it gets a little little snippet in the Clone Wars here and there, I think. Oh, does it? I I think maybe, like, one episode there's a they're on course i don't know but i mean i just remember i i feel like it's thematically very well and i don't remember how it's used in the clone wars if if that's true which i'm assuming it is because i trust you (laughs) shim thank you but thematically in i think it's in light of the jedi that they introduce it in high republic books it's used as the symbol of like there is nothing not too big that it cannot be swallowed up that the Mm -hmm. march of progress can't just engulf and I feel like that is what's going on with the New Republic, is they're just marching on and not thinking and not looking at what they're doing. And I thought it was very interesting in that scene where they're at the fair there with their glowy popsicles and touching the mountain, that they're playing a more, like, upbeat version of the uh, Resistance theme. Yes, they are. I, I clocked that as well. Yeah, that that is... I, I wanted so... I wanted Pershing to be happy so much. I knew it wasn't going to happen from the jump. I... I I hope his journey isn't so painful as it was in this episode that we reintroduce him in because going back to like season one, I was, I was always not really sure about like his involvement and things. And I know he was always kind of unsure and not really all the way gung ho empire wise, but this is, it's, it's an interesting angle that he's just, he's trying to do good. He, he has that backstory about his mother who inspired him to try to do good for the galaxy. And now he's finally Mm -hmm. maybe in a space where he can do it. And there's still agents on every side that are stopping his progress. But also like, he shouldn't be breaking the rules. Like, like I know. (laughs) Yeah. Cloning is, illegal for a really specific 66 specific reasons why cloning is illegal in the new in the new republic and again i reiterate like i don't think they're trying to show pershing as this kind of again there's more nuance in this than there is in a normal mandalorian episode where he's not this super like altruistic guy he doesn't just have the well-being of the universe at heart because as i keep bringing up his definition of what cloning can be is eugenics like it is taking the best parts of the best people and putting them together and i'm like yeah that's that's not great, dude. That You know who else really likes doing that? Somebody call Captain America over here. This guy needs to get put in his place real fast. <laughs> And I'm just, yeah, I I think that it's interesting that he's not just a misunderstood lab tech, that he really does have ideas that are maybe not super safe. And I do believe that he is good-natured and he means well, but also that he's not necessarily doing the right thing. But I don't think any of that matters, Seamus, and I don't think we're seeing more of his journey because I think his brain got fried at the end of this episode. You think that's it? Wait, you think he's dead? No, I don't think he's dead, but I think he got lobotomized. I I think that's where this is going to get extra interesting, Garrett, because I 
I think with a completely fried brain, I think his inhibitions towards, you know, the Republic or the Empire or whatever, I think they're going to be a little haywire. And he is hopefully his good natured, his good, his, his well to do attitude about what he's trying to do and what he's trying to bring to the New Republic. I hope that sticks around, but I think his personality is going to get a lot more radical if he does survive whatever this is. If he's dead, I'm pissed, Garrett. I'm going to tell you that right now. I, I want the second half of every Mando episode to break away to fun Dr. Pershing getting screwed by this lady who is definitely going to bring this stuff back to Gideon to make a Snoke yeah. clone? I, I, well, I mean, I don't know what they're really doing. Would, would you be... Here's my take on it, give which it is me. I don't want to see Pershing again. Wow, interesting. I don't think that was the point of this episode. I think the point was look at like look at what life is like in the New Republic and look at how hard it is to navigate and I think it's just a tragedy. I think it's like, hey, he he thought he was doing the right thing and then he got tricked into he was manipulated by this I think we'll see her again. I think she's clearly mm-hmm. working for Thrawn, which at the beginning I wasn't entirely sure. At the beginning I kind of thought that maybe I mean she was clearly gonna betray him from jump, no question. But I actually kind of thought that maybe it was a commentary and I this is giving the show too much credit, unfortunately I think, that it was trying to be like, look how these people, their brains, they can't get out of the Empire, mm. and they keep having to turn on each other, even though that's not the way the New Republic is structured, and that just like the Empire is built on throwing all of your, you know, peers to the wolves in order to climb that ladder. Totally, totally. That's I... what she was stuck in, and I mean, now it's clear that she's just there for Gideon or Thrawn or whoever clean. I think that she's just cleaning up loose ends, like Pershing is a loose end, and so even though he's trying to rehabilitate and he genuinely believes in the cause of the New Republic, I think the real tragedy episode is he's just falling victim to it anyway. Like he's just gonna be dead. Oh, dude, or not that, dead, but like done useless. For. Yeah. I, I that would make me genuinely very sad. I, I thought we were maybe setting up for like a Andor Cyril like two stories happening at the same time and they don't really directly intersect, but they're so tangled up in each other that they can't help but affecting the other side of what story is being told. But now I'm sad that you might actually be right and what could have been a really interesting character moment of these newly integrated imperial officers into society of what I, I like the idea that they can't turn their brain off like I, I like the idea that she set him up so that she could you know throw him under the bus so that she could do something as simple as get more merit in the program that they're both in but yeah like prove that she is the best exactly one. exactly but now it's clear she she took the cloning stuff she was like obviously using him to like get me what you what one person would need to successfully continue your clone research and now she's taken it to whatever but I I would well now I'm conflicted Garrett now I don't know if I want Pershing back even though I would like to see that kind of structure again but what I'm really saying is I want to watch Andor again and and that is yeah. what I have to stop thinking about in terms of Mandalorian and I think what you brought up about those two stories being parallel is really interesting because obviously the convert kind of means everybody the title of this episode it oh, means yeah. Pershing and it means Bo-Katan and it kind of means Mando and it kind of like it, it is a very clever title I think in what it all can apply to yeah I, I definitely agree and I, I hope there's there's more special attention to the little stuff like that going forward I'm I'm still not all the way on the Mando train no, yet me neither but absolutely not I think but, the next episode yeah. is gonna be the decider of are we are we going in the right right direction or are we are we book a Boba Fett in it I oh, okay it's not gonna be that bad but are we are we going in a direction that I'm gonna be more bored of I I, I is what I fear. I hear that the next episode is directed by Filoni, so I feel like they could okay. go either way. That's e- yeah, it's either going to be just chock full of references.
references and nothing of substance, or it's going to be banging. Which is the two modes that Filoni has, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, it is. And uh, there's a couple of things I want to call out real quick that I that like are cut away. They're not even really jokes. I mean, one of them is a joke. A couple of things that happened with Pershing that I enjoyed. One is when they get to the end of the train, Pershing goes, it's the end of the train, <laughs> which is very much giving, it's the lava river from <laughs> yeah. season one. Uh, also notice how he opens the door, takes like five steps forward before he reacts physically to it being the end of the train. <laughs> yes. I, I enjoyed that. Which I think is probably, if I were a betting man, Seamus, that that was not shot on the volume, that that was shot on a green screen and yeah. that he wasn't reacting to something he could see. Uh, that is exact. I would, I would not take that bet because I would lose against you because I agree. And also, I have to shout this out and I know that you also caught this, which is when Pershing is getting about to get mind flayed and he's trying to convince <laughs> his doctor that it was a trap and it <laughs> cuts a... to the Mon Calamari. <laughs> Giving him like a look almost. I don't know. <laughs> that was so funny. And I was like, this is really dumb because it totally is breaking the fourth wall. But also I like it. <laughs> yeah. Also that made me giggle like an idiot, like the dork that I am. Uh, because it's, I, it, I, I really, really hope that they're not trying to retcon like Mon Calamari say it's a trap. It's something <laughs> they say. That's like, what I, that's what I was thinking too. Like, don't make that, like, their thing. That's weird. It was just a trap that one time. I think that's profiling, actually. I was gonna say that it's like, he's trying to convince his doctor, like, it was a trap. He's like, oh, just because I'm Mon Calamari, it's gotta be a trap then, huh? <laughs> Screw you, man. Turn it up to 100. Uh, well, they do. They do turn it up to 100. <laughs> oh, dude. Why do, Here, that's the real thing, is if the New Republic isn't planning on using that device to be a mind flayer, why does it go up that Why high? does it go to 11? It doesn't why? need to go up to 11. Exactly what Cut I'm going to He's like, this is like, it's super safe, everybody's fine, and it's like, alright, let's leave this unattended ex-imperial, and I know she's like a Rebirian rehabilitated or whatever, but it's like, let's leave this ex-imperial woman alone with the button that kills people. Let's just do that. But yeah, I I was very satisfied with this episode 3 specifically. I thought episode 2 was fine, and I was going into what was going to be our second Mando Bros of the season episode, being like, yeah, this is better. If it continues getting this better, <laughs> I think it'll be a good season. But now I'm like, if they could really capitalize on the insight that they seem to have gleaned. I think we're on a good trend, and I agree with you that next episode is the deal breaker. Like, is this a return to, not even a return to form, but just a return to being a good show? Or are we just going to go back to more Mandalorian crap I don't care about yeah, next episode? I swear to God, if they're just like, all right, now we got to go find the IG-11 battery, I'll be like, what are we doing here? But there's like a 50-50 chance that that is one of the episodes in this season. I am I am going to ride that roller coaster with you, man. We'll, we'll see what happens next week, but fingers crossed for a little Thrawn action, I think. You know, it's Filoni next week. Anything's on the table. Could Anything be Ahsoka. Anything's on could the table. Be... Could oh, be more yeah. Bo-Katan stuff, could be whatever, you know. Oh, we'll find I, out. I am looking forward to it, but at this point, what do you say we head on over to save the rec center? I want to save it, Seamus. I want to do it. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the rec center, where we give you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, lay it on me. Well, I recently watched, checked it out from the library, and watched it in two parts because it was, it, it was a lot longer than I thought it was going to be, so be warned. Clocking in at two hours and 45 minutes. Ooh. 
almost as behemoth of a runtime as its cast is, and also the integral structure to the film. 1974's The Towering Inferno. Oh, The Towering Inferno is three hours long? And it is great, (laughs) Seamus. And you should, it's pure popcorn. It's got an all-star cast, including Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. Oh, yeah. And Faye Dunaway and Robert, baby Robert Wagner. Um, He maybe hadn't even killed Natalie Wood by this point. I'm not really sure about the timeline. (laughs) Oh, God. Um, O.J. Simpson definitely hadn't killed his wife by this time. Who else? We got, it's just an all-star cast and I really enjoyed it. I love a good 70s disaster movie. You know that about me. And I think The Towering Inferno is the greatest of them. As much as I love The Poseidon Adventure, there is something about this movie that is so exciting, and it has such an inspired set pieces, and it has clearly influenced so many things. I learned when I was reading about it after watching it that it was the direct inspiration for Die Hard. Wow, no kidding. I, that, I mean, that makes complete sense but that that is interesting that it, I'll, I'll share this little anecdote Roderick Thorpe had a dream after the night after he saw the towering inferno about a building on fire where a man was getting chased around by other men with guns and then he sat down and wrote the book that would later be adapted into Die Hard that is incredible I love that so much I really I've always wanted to see the towering inferno that's been on my list for ages now but I I think I need to actually sit down and watch that one i love a disaster movie myself but i know this one has always been kind of heralded as the king of the classic disaster movie so i'm very very interested it is also i think somehow more influential on titanic than poseidon adventure which makes <laughs> no sense <laughs> that's so funny but i i kind of believe you that that that's incredible i i was i was expecting for it to be fun and stupid and whatever and you know shelly winters and gene hackman and poseidon adventure you know how much i love that stuff oh yeah but this is just, it works for me on a, Mike Lookinland, the littlest Brady other than Cindy, <laughs> is there. No way. I think part of it, too, is also that in a disaster movie, you kind of understand the characters who die and how they die. And, like, mm. you know, who gets the noble sacrifice that gets played out for a while and who's the who's the bastard that gets crushed <laughs> by whatever stupid thing at the end of the movie. And this movie, it did have those, but it also subverted my expectations a lot in, like, people who I was genuinely invested in that I got shocked when they died. Wow, okay. They, they take, they've taken big swings on movies like this, you know, this early in that kind of movie being made. In 1974, they'll kill anybody. And, I mean, it's famously the last blockbuster before Jaws invented yes. the actual mm-hmm. blockbuster. That is seriously the last the last classic one, because I, I remember, like, in, in school, in, in, like, different film classes, we would watch the commercial, the, the trailer for it, and it's one of those classic sick old school like the the craziest movie you'll see this summer in towering inferno that that's what i remember from that and, and i i never wanted to I, i've never stopped wanting to see it but what do you have this week have you ever heard of a little thing called star wars rebels garrett i don't know it's, it's a little thing that i picked up it's a little underground little thing and honestly it's a little more underground than it should be now that i've fully finished it after years and years of getting through it and finally getting on the train, blasting through the last part of the the last season. It was thrilling. 
It was genuinely incredible. Chills that I don't get from Star Wars as often as I did in this show were happening real frequently once we started getting into the meat of Rebels, and I think it is completely undersung. I want more people to see it. It's so obviously influential with so much of what's happening in The Mandalorian and, you know, Ahsoka and all the future of these things. They're finally... The the attention and care they've been bringing in with, like, the Clone Wars content with the newer stuff, they're finally starting to drip-feed us what we want, which is more uh, Hera, Syndulla, more... Honestly, give me give me live-action Zeb. I don't even care. I want more Zeb, man. He, he was, like, the best. And somehow, the, the weirdest, most attractive cartoon character I've ever seen, Agent Callus, coming through hard in this show. I love this so he's much. He's so good. He is! He really, really is! Ugh. It's it's Star Wars storytelling that I, I... It's hard to find. I almost... The way that they do, like, the Force and Ezra's and Kanan's kind, like, brand of training and their relationship that they have with the people that they care about, it makes me think more about, like, the High Republic view of the Force and the magic of the Force and, you know, Ezra's individuality in his connection with the Force throughout, you know, how that develops throughout the show. It's phenomenal. And I... This almost makes me <laughs> feel foolish because you have been smacking me upside the head for years to finish this show finally, but I couldn't be more happier that I finally did, and I, I want as many little Pergil references as I can get in Mandalorian. Seamus Ani, I am nodding and smiling <laughs> so hard. It's 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 magical. It's truly incredible, and it kind of blows my mind that it's only four seasons, but it, it's kind of a perfect little four-season package once they wrap it up towards the end. I need some rebel stuff in Jedi Survivor or I will lose my mind. I right? think we need something. Well, to me, it, it, I don't think it's objectively the best Star Wars thing, but I think Rebels is probably, as I've said to you before, my favorite Star Wars thing, because like you said, it gets to the heart of what Star Wars is more than anything, frankly, since Empire Strikes Back has. And I'm not going to lie and say that there's not a lot of runaround in this show in the early stuff. And, you know, that first season, I mean, you have to watch it because you're getting to of, know those of characters. Course. But yeah, it's a kid's show that first yeah. season. And I can't, I'm that for my love of kids shows that Star Wars kids shows that turn out to be incredible content I'm not gonna fault it for that even all around as as the whole package it it makes you feel something absolutely I I completely agree I'm so glad <laughs> Seamus that you have finally caught up I I'm not gonna smack you upside the head I'm not gonna scold you I'm just gonna say welcome <laughs> thank welcome. you thank you but that wraps us up for the show this week if you want to reach the show on social media that's at PCR underscore podcast on Twitter TikTok and Instagram and if you want to reach the show directly, you can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to be talking about the first three John Wick films, all starring Lance Reddick. So that's pretty fitting for what we were talking about up top this episode. And I've actually not seen John Wick Chapter 3 yet, so and I'm, I've excited. Seen, I'm excited to check that out. Yeah, I've, I've not seen 2 or 3, and I, I love 1 for what it is, as the insanity that people sometimes don't see it for. But I'm very excited to, to get into these, and... Honestly, I'm pretty excited for John Wick 4, something that I didn't really care about until I watched the trailer again recently and I'm now <sighs> super pumped for. I know how you love Donnie Yen. I know. I don't don't cancel me at the end of the show, Garrett. <laughs> God. There was a uh, uh, no, that uh, I 
Nah, screw it. I love Donnie Yen. Donnie Yen's the best. Personal, professional. <laughs> he's the man. I love him. This, uh, Garrett, his hands. Do you know how fast? They're so fast. <laughs> I don't know if I've, ex- if I've expressed that enough, but whatever. Uh, I want to see him fight fast gun versus fast hands. I think you're going to get your wish. <laughs> Good. Thank God. Well, I'm, I'm excited to check that out next week. Adios, amigos.